Right on. So Philippians chapter 1. And it says this. We kind of took a peek at this last Sunday as we introduced it. But it says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we took a peek last week. We kind of just went back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 and it, in Acts 16 tells us the initial path that Paul took that led him uh, to the Roman colony of, of Philippi. We saw how the Holy Spirit closed two doors and forbid him to go in a certain direction. And essentially the Spirit of God funneled him towards the province of Macedonia, in particular to this colony of Philippi, where the Lord was essentially saying to Paul, we are going to step into the territory of a Roman colony for the first time with the gospel. And there, as Paul and his team preached Christ through a series of miracles and an imprisonment, doors were opened, hearts were opened, and a church was born, a body, a, a, body, a fellowship was born. And now, as we come to the book of this letter of Philippians, it's 10, ten years have passed. And lots of gospel adventures have happened. And Paul is now, now he's not in Philippi. Now he's in Rome. And once again, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. Uh, he, at this time, as he writes this letter, he is chained 24-7 to an imperial Roman uh, guard. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that. And he's waiting his opportunity to make his appeal to Caesar. He's going to go before Caesar and appeal to him and share the gospel with him. And so this is where Paul is, sitting in Rome under house arrest, while he writes to this church in Philippi. And, and as he begins to share with this church and he talks about his relationship with them and his heart for them, the fellowship that he senses he has with them, the true a Christian fellowship that he has shared with them. What he's going to talk about here in the first 11 verses is he's going to say three things about this church. He's going to say this. I have you in, on my mind. I have you in my mind. I have you in my heart. And I have you in my prayers. As he talks to this body. And so check it out. Verse three. He says this. Speaks first of his mind. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, you know, it's amazing to just stop and think about this for a moment because here's Paul. Like I said, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a, a soldier. And who's he thinking about? He's thinking about others. Not himself. If it was me, I'd be like, oh, me, oh, Lord, what? What's going on? And here he is. He's not thinking about himself. He's, he's awaiting trial. He doesn't know. doesn't know what's going to happen with Caesar. Is Caesar going to befriend him or behead him? And, and so there he is. And yet, as he thinks about Philippi and he thinks about the believers there and he recalls the way the Lord worked in that city and amongst that group of people to establish a, a church in that city, the predominant emotion that fills his mind and his thoughts is this joy. 
He says, I think about you, man, I pray. It's with joy. He thought about Philippi, you remember it. Remember how Lydia got saved? Wow, that was awesome, you know? Remember, remember when there was that demon-possessed girl and the Lord just blessed me to cast the demon out of that girl? Remember when, you know, I was in jail and bloodied and bruised and Silas and I were worshiping Jesus and, and God shook the foundations of that prison and the shackles fell off and the prison guard got saved and his whole family, like, remember? He's thinking about Philippi and it's with joy as people turn to Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about the believers in Philippi that is kind of alluded to in verse five and that we're gonna see later on in this book is that, that it seems to suggest that they actually became supporters of Paul's ministry, financial supporters, you know, not just prayer, but they got behind what was going on, Paul's church planting, Jesus preaching ministry. In fact, Philippians four tells us that they were the only church that was doing so amongst all the churches as he was about doing the work of an apostle and, and planting churches and doing these things. And Paul says to them in verse six, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What work is he talking about that God is going to bring to completion in the heart of these Philippians? It's this salvation, the good work of salvation. And the good work of salvation is a work that the Lord does when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so it was a source of joy for Paul to know that God had worked in this city. He'd worked in this church. He'd worked in the hearts of these people. It was joy to him to know that God was not going to stop until he completed the work. And he confidently knew that the Lord would finish his work in the believers at Philippi. We talked quite a bit about that last week. So Paul says, I have you in my mind. Then he says this, I have you in my heart. Look at verse seven. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting because it's, it's possible to have someone on your mind and not have them in your heart. And Paul says this, I have you on my mind and I have you on my heart. Now, usually when you think about people who are on your mind and are not on your heart, they're usually the one that are on your, those, those are the people that are on your nerves. You know, if they're just on your mind, then they're on your nerves. And, and it's, you know what I'm talking about, right? And do you have someone who's on your nerves this morning? <laughs> Hopefully it's not me because I've got the microphone right now. No. And no, but seriously, who, who's on your nerves? Who's robbing you of joy? You know, maybe it's your husband this morning. Maybe it's your wife this morning. Maybe it's your kids as you're getting out the door to get to church. It's like, uh, you know, maybe it's that neighbor or a coworker or your boss or whoever it, it is. And, and I want to encourage you. It's like Paul says, you're, you're on my heart and you're on my mind and you're in my heart. And you know, I really, I really think of what allowed that to happen for Paul, of what made that happen was this, is that he was a man of prayer. He was, he was praying for those relationships that he had. And I would encourage you, you know, who's on your nerves? I would tell you, pray, pray for them. Pray for them and two things will happen. It will happen 100%, I guarantee it. 
They will change because God answers prayer, but then the second thing is even better. You'll change because prayer changes us. And, you know, I was, I have to tell you, I'm just going to fess up. I, I've had something like just driving me. I've been, I've had something on my nerves this week. And it's like escalated for me as the week's gone on. And um, it's not to do with anyone here. So you're all in the clear. Uh, but this situation was on my nerves. And I was like so bothered to the point yesterday where I'm like, I actually like, I had to go spend time in prayer. And I'm like, Lord, what, the, what is wrong with me? Like, what is wrong with me with regards to this? Like, I, I, I cannot rein my thoughts in. I cannot rein my emotions in. I'm, I'm ticked. I'm frustrated. And I can't even change my heart right now. And, you know, last week we talked about this a little bit. It's like, you know, ask God to change your, you, we change our minds, but we ask him to change our hearts. I said, God, you got to deal with my heart so that I can change my thoughts. And you know, the Lord just worked in my heart. It was like that divine transaction happened again. I took my anxiety to him. I cast my cares upon him. I prayed to him with thanksgiving. The peace of God, which transcends our all understanding, just began to guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. He brought peace. It was on your nerves. And Paul says this to this church. He says, I have you on my heart, in my heart. And you know, it just reminds me that the word tells us this, that faith, hope, and love, these three remain, but the greatest of these is what? Love. The apostle John said this in 1 John 3, 14. He says that, that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we do this. We love the brothers. It, it means it's the brothers and the sisters. We love the body we love the family of God. See, love is the evidence of salvation. And so if you're, if you're sitting here today and everyone in this entire room, you know, just the whole room is on your nerves, that's not a good sign with regards to your relationship to Jesus, okay? I mean, I say that jokingly, but I see it in all seriousness too. It's not a good sign if everyone here is on your nerves as to the reality of your walk and your relationship with Jesus Christ. That it's living and it's vital. Because love for the body, love for the church is a fruit of salvation. It's a fruit of salvation. It is the evidence of salvation. And in fact, I would say this, there's, there's evidence of that love in our lives. You know, if you think, if salvation is the roots of the tree, and love is the trunk of the tree, then there are some branches on that trunk of love. And they should be things like this, you know, concern for one another. And we see this about the believers in Philippi. I mean, they were concerned about Paul. They were so concerned about Paul as we're going to see as we get later in this letter that they were sending, you know, they were praying, they were sending financial support. They eventually sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, and they sent him to Rome to care for Paul while he was there uh, under house arrest. And Paul was mutually concerned about them. And so there's this, this relationship of mutual concern. That's a fruit of love. Another one of the evidences of love is a willingness to forgive. You know, not long ago, Lisa and I were chatting. We were having this conversation and I don't remember the context. I didn't tell her I was going to tell a story. So I'll hear about it later. No, I won't. I won't. 
she's not like that. Yeah, she'll forgive me. Because this is actually a story of forgiveness. Because we were, we were chatting about something, and I don't remember the context of the conversation, but it reminded me of something that I once said to her that I was like, that I've regretted all our married life. You know, I'm like, man, I just like, oh, can't believe I said that. I just like, pull that, hang that, I hang on to that one. Never forget it and feel guilty about it. And, and, and so as we were like having this conversation, I like just, took time to apologize to her again. And you know what she said to me? She said, I don't even remember that. And I'm like, what? You don't remember that? And I've been like, I'm like packing this, this terrible thing. And I felt bad for a long time and she doesn't even remember it. And, and I thought, wow, that means this. She really loves me. <laughs> it, it does. That's what that means. She really loves me because the scripture says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And that is one of the fruits of love. It's one of the branches to be forgiving, willingness to forgive. You know, Romans 5, 5, Paul said this. He said, God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given. See, this love, it's a gift of the Spirit. This love and this concern for one another, this willingness to forgive one another. And when God is at work in us, and when we grow in our love for one another and when we practice love towards one another, we experience what Paul experienced, joy. He said, I've got joy when I think about you. You're in my heart and you're in my mind and I've got joy when I think about you. Of course, it was Paul who said in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Love and joy. And the whole list more. But then he says this too in verse 9. Check it out. He says, I have you in my prayers. And, it's, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So... One of the ways that Paul experienced this joy for the church and one of the ways he expressed that they were on his heart and they were on his mind was this, is that he was praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Tonight we, we meet, 7.30, tonight, church prayer. And Paul brought the body of Christ before the throne of grace, the throne of God's unmerited favor. Reminds me of the high priest. You remember the high priest in the Old Testament? He wore all of his special garments as his ministry to the Lord. And one of the garments that he wore was called the ephod. And on the ephod were 12 stones. And each of the stones was inscribed with one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And he wore this ephod. Well, it was positioned right over his chest. The idea was that it was set over his heart because he was to carry the people of God on his heart all the time. And in fact, I would say this, the 12 stones for the 12 tribes, we say stones, but they were gems, man. They were valuable stones, a jewel for each tribe. And whenever the high priest would come before the Lord and he would minister to the Lord, he carried the people of God, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, he carried them over his heart. It was a picture that he was to love them as he served God. And you think about that nation, you know, think about some of those tribes and some of those people. I mean, some of them were stubborn, so, like you. Some of them were, 
backslidden. I won't say like me there. Um, some of them were unappreciative. Some of them were rebellious. And yet they were set over the heart of the high priest and he was to love them. And as he ministered before God, they were to be on his heart. He carried them over his heart. And Paul carried the Philippians over his. You know, I don't think there is any deeper experience of Christian fellowship um, than to bring your family, your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ before the throne of grace. I think that is the most intimate expression of fellowship, to lift one another up in prayer. And, and Paul prayed, and he says, I pray specific things. He said, uh, as he prayed for the maturity of this church, he prayed for their love. He said, I pray that it will abound more and more. He said, he, he prayed that their love would grow in knowledge and that their love would grow in discernment. I like that because to me that means this, like the Christian love is not to be blind. It's a discerning love. It's a knowledgeable love. In Christ, the heart and the mind are designed to work together and be submitted to him. And the place of prayer is a great place for that to happen. And a knowledgeable heart, a knowledgeable mind in the things of God is discernment is a mark of maturity. Paul also said this, that he prayed for their character. He, he said, I pray that you will approve what is excellent so as to be pure and blameless on the day when Jesus comes. That idea of being pure and blameless is expressed in the original language. It means this. He says, I, I pray that your life will be like tested by sunlight. That the chaff will be gone and it will be all pure. That you'll be, you'll be tested by the light. Meaning this, you won't be afraid of any darkness that's in you. You'll be willing to stand in the light, he says. Not afraid. And so you see, as Paul, you know, as he prayed for them, I, I would say this, it's a good model for us when we're praying for others. He prayed for them to have mature Christian love. He prayed for them to have mature Christian character. He, he prayed for them that they would be fruitful. We'll see that here in a second. But I would say this, look, when we're praying for others, you know, when we're praying for character or if we're, I guess actually if we're kind of evaluating the character in our own lives, Here's a good test for us. Here's two questions you can ask yourself, you know, when we're trying to discern our way or our, our thoughts or uh, navigating a situation. Here's a good one. Will it make others stumble? Or as Paul prayed, will I be ashamed if Jesus were to return? <laughs> will I be ashamed if Jesus were to return? So Paul, Paul's praying these things. He's praying for mature Christian love, pray, praying for mature Christian character, and praying for them to be fruitful. Remember Jesus told his disciples in John 15 that the key to a fruitful life was to remain in him. He said this, abide in me and abide, uh, abide in me and let my words abide in you. You know, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said this, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Paul is praying for this church that they would be a fruitful church. And I, I think sometimes, you know, we equate 
fruitfulness to activity. You know, we look at the church calendar, we go, wow, look at it, there's things going on. You know, there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. There's an auction, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes we equate fruitfulness to human activity or religious activity. But I would say this with fruit, that's not always the case. Activity does not equal fruit. What equals fruit is abiding. Abiding equals fruit. Abiding produces fruit, abiding in Jesus. You know, Isabel and I kind of have this thing that we do. We, uh, we, uh, we got into canning a few years ago, the two of us. And uh, we have some trees that we watch on the Sunshine Coast. We watch these trees and we have our eye on them and we're not going to tell you where they are <laughs> because we're waiting for the fruit. And we've been checking these trees for a few weeks now. And we've been watching and, and as, you know, I've observed these trees... Anytime I go to them, I go and I go to inspect the fruit. Is it ready? Is the fruit ready? Because we're going we're gonna to pillage that tree when no one's looking. No, it's not quite like that. And then, well, it's close. It's close. And then, <laughs> and then we're going to can that fruit together. And, you know, I've observed that these trees that, that, well, the tree is never striving. The tree is never striving. I've never gone to inspect that tree and heard it grunting. Never been groaning. Never been like, ooh, this is hard work. I've never heard it say that. It's not in any struggle. You know what it's doing? It's just abiding. It's just getting its roots down deep into the soil and it's drawing nutrients and it's drawing nourishment. And that's to be you and I if we're going to be fruitful. Busyness and activity can be mistaken for fruitfulness, but fruitfulness is only produced by abiding, abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, I'm praying that you're going to be fruitful. And so he tells his church, got you on my mind, got you on my heart. I have you in my prayers. And then he begins to change and tell them a little bit else about what's going on and, and you know Paul had desired for a long time when you read the book of Acts and you read through his letters you see that he had a desire for a long time to go and preach the gospel in Rome that he sensed that God had called him to preach Christ there and even when the Holy Spirit had opened the door for Paul to preach in Philippi um, that was for the first time entering a true Roman colony with the gospel and so Paul recognized Philippi is the first step. Philippi is a stepping stone because eventually the Spirit of God is leading me to the city of Rome where I'm going to preach Jesus. And so the experience of Philippi was one of the key things for Paul in, in birthing and conceiving in him this desire to preach Jesus in Rome. And so Paul wanted to go to Rome. And as you know, the Lord arranged a trip there for him. He's like, yeah, you want to go there, Paul? I'm going to provide you an all-expense-paid trip. In chains, you know, with the soldier, the whole deal. And the preacher went to Rome, but he went there as a prisoner. And the Philippians knew the story. Acts chapter 21 through 28 tells us the whole story in great deal. And so Paul begins to share with them regarding this experience. And I think 
here in a section of this chapter, he begins to summarize all of Acts 21 through 28. And well, really just in one sentence to start, check it out. He begins to talk about his chains, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, Paul talks about this. It's like his situation's not exactly ideal, you know. It's not an ideal circumstance in my mind, where the spot that he's found himself in Rome. He's chained to an imperial guard. But it's interesting, you know, Paul didn't, he doesn't say, wow, I'm so happy. I'm like chained to a guard. This rocks. My life's awesome. I'm under house arrest. That's not what he says. And Paul didn't derive his joy from his circumstance. Paul found, found joy in the fact that God was opening the door for him to share Jesus. He found his joy in winning people to Jesus. And it's like he's saying here as you read that, it's like he's saying, I, I don't care what the circumstance is. I don't care. Whatever God wants to lead me through. If the result is this, that Jesus is preached and the cause of the kingdom of God is advanced and people come to Jesus because of my circumstance, I'm good with it. I got joy because I want people to come to Jesus. And you know, it's interesting that sometimes God uses strange things in our lives. He uses strange circumstances for the advance of his, of his gospel. You know, think about some of the characters of the Bible and the things God used in their life. Like for Moses, God used the staff. Gideon, some pitchers, you know, some water pitchers. For David, it was a sling. You know, for that a little boy in the Gospels, it was his loaves and his fishes. For Paul, it was his chains. It was his chains. And Paul didn't complain about the chains. You know what he recognized? That God wanted to and could use the chains for the kingdom and for the gospel. And I think on some level, Paul said this. I think he said this. Lord, I don't like these chains. Lord, in Philippi, the last time I was in chains, you set me free. And so I know, Lord, you can set me free from these chains again. Lord, I know that last time when I was praising you and I was in chains, you shook the foundation of the prison and the chains fell off. It was a miracle. And so I know as I praise you, you can loose these chains and you can set me free. But Lord, no matter what you do, I'm going to purpose in my heart to serve you. No matter what you do, I'm going to purpose in my heart to serve you and your gospel and your name. Lord, even if it means being chained to an imperial guard, I will take this situation. In fact, Lord, I can hear him. I have a captive audience. Get it? He's chained to a guard. And I will share Jesus with that man. See, Paul's chains, here's the interesting thing. Paul's chains brought him into contact with lost people, with those who didn't know Jesus. And you know, the fact might be the very same thing for you. You know, the thing that you go, this has me chained. 
maybe God desires to use the thing that has you chained to bring you into contact with those who are lost. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. History says this, that they were chained to him for periods of six hours. And so over a 24-hour period, he had at least four people that he could share Jesus with. Can you imagine being chained to Paul? Like, seriously. It's like, wow. Being chained to Paul. Yeah? Epaphroditus arrives from Philippi, comes to care for him. Paul talks about Jesus. You know, Luke pops in. Because the Bible tells us it was house arrest. He was allowed to have people come and visit him. So Luke drops by. Hey, man, just wanted to check out, you know, how those chains are doing. Can I pray for you, Paul? And they prayed together, you know. You know, today, when you think about house arrest, it's like someone who's under house arrest has to wear some sort of tracking device, right? Well, Paul wore an imperial Roman guard 24-7. And everyone who came to see him, just imagine Paul. What were they talking about? Well, this guard's got to sit there. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the kingdom of God. I mean, imagine being chained to Paul. Acts tells us, he, he wrote one of the churches, he said, bring my scrolls. Because I want to study the Bible. So he's got his scrolls. He's studying the word of God while he's chained to this guy. Or imagine when he decides to worship. Or when he be- decides that he's going to begin to spend some time in prayer. That, that guard would hear him pray for the churches. That guard would hear him pray for the advance of the gospel. You know, he'd hear him pray that somehow, some way, God would take these very chains that had him and that they would be used for the glory of Jesus. And best yet, I bet he turned to the soldier and said, can I pray for you? Is there a need in your family? Is there a situation going on? Can, Can I bring you and your family before the throne of grace and before King Jesus? Hey man, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life? Can, can I pray for you to receive Christ? I'm sure Paul would tell those soldiers the adventures God had taken him on. The missionary journeys. The riots. The people getting saved. The miracles. The salvation. The time that they tried to kill him. Stoning him to death. Then Luke would come by the house And Luke would interview him because Luke was writing the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so Paul would recount the story and Luke would be writing it out. And the scripture tells us that it was like that for two years, man. Two years in Rome. Chained. 365 days times two. That's 730 days. 24-7 men, imperial guards, were chained to Paul. I did the math. That's over 2,900 shifts of Roman soldiers attached to Paul. Isn't that crazy? Like to just think about it? And I just have to wonder how many of them got saved? How many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ? How many of their wives got saved? How many of their entire households got saved like the Roman guard in Philippi? We have to wait to heaven to get the rest of the details. How many of those imperial guards became leaders in the church? You know, deacons and elders, 
pastors and evangelists. How many of them did Paul have time to, it's like, sweet man, what are you so pumped about? You're going to be chained to Paul. Yeah, that's right, man. We're going to do some discipleship. I, I'm going to get to do discipleship with Paul while I chained to him on my job. There's a captive audience. Look at me one more time at verse 13. Look at what it says in verse 13. Actually, let's go 12 too. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Those are not empty words, man. Verse 13. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Man, that's awesome. Paul wasn't exaggerating when he said Jesus has become known in the whole imperial guard. My chains serve the purposes of the kingdom. And in verse 14, he, he tells us that, that as a result, many of the followers of Jesus in Rome and, and in, the, in those regions were inspired by what had happened to Paul. They grew in confidence, their confidence in the gospel, as they saw what God did through Paul's chains and through Paul's imprisonment. And so I would ask you this morning, like the natural thing, we've got to recognize this and see this. Here's the question for you. What has you chained? What has God chained to you? Could it be that those chains are there to serve his purpose? Could it be that God is just waiting for you to realize that he has shackled you to bring you into contact with lost people? Praise God with your chains. Offer to serve Jesus right where he has you. You know, our chains may not be as dramatic or difficult, but there's, you know, there's no reason why God cannot use the things that have shackled us. You know, usually, usually, you know, our first thought is this, well, you know, if I begin to speak in this situation, what will people think? I'll look crazy. And Paul says, look, I wasn't without my critics while all this was going on. Look at verse 15. He wasn't without critics. He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, you... You read this story, you think about this, and you think, wow, it's kind of hard to believe that people would oppose Paul. But there were people doing that. There were believers doing that. There were, I, I think, churches divided, even while, you know, sections of the body of Christ divided, even while he was going about this work. And, and, and some were preaching Jesus with sincerity. They wanted people to get saved. And others were doing it just because they wanted things to be more difficult for Paul in that prison. They were using the gospel for selfish purposes. And I love that Paul says, I don't care. I don't care what their motivation is. 
as long as Jesus is preached. I don't care. You know, it's a... I actually read this devotional this morning, kind of flipped it open, and it's, uh, it was telling the history of John and, and Charles Wesley. And it's, it's interesting that historic record actually tells about uh, John Wesley and his relationship with another pastor, evangelist, George Whitfield. And some of you guys know the history of these two men, that God used them greatly in England and America and during lots of revival times. And the thing about John and George was this, is that they disagreed on doctrinal matters. They were famous for it, even though they were friends. And both of them were very successful. Both of them preached to thousands of people. Both of them saw thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. And it was reported that one time someone came to Wesley, John Wesley, and said this, it will ask him if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven because they were like undoctrinal, like they were like this. So do you expect that George Whitfield will be in heaven? And do you, well, sorry, do you expect to see George Whitfield in heaven? And John said this, no, I don't. I don't expect to see him in heaven. Then the question was asked, well, don't, don't you think, Whitfield was saved? And then Wesley replied with this answer. He says, of course he's saved. Of course he's a converted man, but I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away that I won't even be able to see him. See, though they differed, though John differed with his brother in the Lord George on some matters, they didn't, they didn't differ on the ones that mattered, but they differed on some matters. Wesley didn't have any envy in his heart for his brother, nor did he seek to oppose his brother's ministry. And so look what Paul says at the end of verse 18. He's, he's talking about those who oppose him. He says, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so because of Paul's chains, Jesus was made known. He had his, Paul had his critics. But then Paul begins to talk about how God has used this situation and how Jesus has been glorified. And we'll just read one more section of scripture. We'll kind of lay up on this chapter a little bit this morning. But let's check it out, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul begins to just talk about this situation that he's in, the chains, the critics, 
And he recognized this. Jesus is glorified in it all. In fact, I, I might say this, that it, it would be better to say this. His life magnified Jesus. Remember when you were a kid, you got one of those magnifying glasses? I used to burn things, you know. Find a slug, find some grass, you know, line it up, get the sun going, burn things. Did you do that? Remember those? Those magnifying glasses, those were cool. Boys liked those things. Eli used to pack those around a lot when he was into his pirates and stuff. And you know, a magnifying glass is so cool because a magnifying glass like makes an object appear closer than it is. It like magnifies it. And you know, it's kind of like this. When you, when you begin to hit, you know, sometime in your early 40s and then you, you pick up a book and you start going, then you get magnifying glasses again. You just pay more money. And then it makes the object appear bigger than it is. So you can read. Remember when you were a kid, you know, those things used to come in a cereal box. Now, you know, when you're, when you're in your 40s, you got to go to a doctor and pay lots of money. But anyways, I digress. Look at what Paul says. He says, my situation, my crisis, my chains have resulted in this. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is magnified. It's like this. My neighbor's right there, and Jesus is right over there. And in the middle is me. I'm in the middle. Neighbor over there, me right here, Jesus right there. And to my neighbor, to that person, Jesus appears to be far away. Like he's a great distance away. They can't recognize him. They don't know him. They don't know what he looks like. They don't know what he's about. They don't know what, he's wor what his word says. And then the Lord places me right between that neighbor and himself. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. God ordains a crisis. God ordains some chains. God ordains the critics. And your neighbor watches. And they think to themselves, that person must be falling apart. The stuff that's going on in their life, they, they must be falling apart. And maybe that is the case on the inside on some level, you know, as you deal with your chains and your, your critics, the crisis, whatever it is. Except for this reason, Jesus is carrying you. Jesus is in you. Except for the fact that Jesus himself has chained himself to you. He's put his spirit in you. And the crisis is hard and it's difficult. Maybe that crisis could be the hardest, most difficult situation that you have ever personally encountered. But in it, you cling to Jesus. And Jesus clings to you. You may even think like Paul did. You know, it'd just be easier, Lord, to die. On some level, Lord, in the midst of what I am going through, it would be easier to die and just to be with you and to see you face to face than to go with through this situation. 
And I would say to you this morning, here's what the Holy Spirit wants you to know. That all the while your crisis is going on, that all the while you're sensing chains or critics or whatever it is, as you cling to Jesus and Jesus clings to you, others are watching. Neighbors are watching. The community is watching and your life is serving as a magnifying lens to Jesus. Jesus, whom they thought was so small and so insignificant, your life made him bigger. Jesus, who they thought was so far away, your life brought him closer. Your life was the telescope They thought Jesus was far away and watching you made them realize Jesus is really close to some people. That's you. You're the microscope that enlarges Jesus and brings him near. You know, I I, I was just thinking about our church, you know, (laughs) thinking about some of the suffering and the things that we've seen going on here. Thinking about Sam, Melanie, the way Jesus was magnified at Sam's service. Amazing. The community watched, family watched. Oh, what the heck was with these guys? How what, Jesus was brought nearer. Or those that have been sick in our midst, or I think of James, mom, I think of Murray, I think of Neil, dad. Jesus magnified and others of you as we cling to him. And that's why Paul says this. Look at, look at your Bible again, verse 21. That's why he says this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. We get what he's saying. Man, it'd be easier just to go. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, he says, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in you, so that in me, sorry, you may have ample cause to glorify, magnify Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Man, it's so great, the body of Christ, you know. Just the way God's brought us together to to love one another. To put, you know, God's put people on your mind. He's put them in your heart. He's put them in your prayers, in this body. You're praying for one another. You're lifting one another up. That's the fruit of love. We desire that in this body. And then we desire this. We want to be those who magnify Jesus, don't we? And so let's just do this. As we're encouraged by Paul's word, just just invite the Lord. Say, God, whatever it is, my chains, those who want to criticize me, the crisis that I'm in, whatever. Sometimes, Lord, It might be easier just to die, but I just pray this. Would you allow me to magnify Jesus and what I'm going through? 
Amen? Right on. Would you stay with me? Worship team, I'm going to invite you to come.